Look, Brody, you started a panic on a public beach. You shot up the damn place. God knows who you could have injured. Now, what if somebody decides to sue us? Did you ever stop to think about that? It could ruin us. You don't have to worry about being sued or being ruined. If this turns out to be what I think it is, because there won't be anybody here. Yeah, now, Martin, let's not, uh... Let's not what, Larry? What? Oh, Jesus, Larry, huh? Come on, let's just forget it. He won't listen. It's obvious the man has made up his mind. You bet your life I've made up my mind. But I'm telling you, and I'm telling everybody at this table, that that's a shark. And I know what a shark looks like, because I've seen one up close. And you better do something about this one, because I don't intend to go through that hell again. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the Welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 224, Jaws 2, Jaws 3D and Jaws the Revenge. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, hi, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Welcome back to Verbal Diorama if you are a returning listener. But if you are a brand new listener to this podcast, thank you for finding this podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And as always, if you're a regular returning listener, thank you for coming back. Because no matter how you got here, I'm so grateful that you are here. Because this week is a bit different. We're going to be doing the history and legacy of Jaws 2, Jaws 3D, and Jaws the Revenge. This month, Verbal Diorama is celebrating sequels. It is something that I call Sequel Timber. And it's sequels to movies that have already been featured on this podcast. And if you're wondering where the episode on Jaws is, that is episode 106. It's been a long time since I've covered anything to do with Jaws. And what I wanted to do this month is I wanted to let the patrons of this podcast decide what they wanted. And so they were given a choice. What do you want to see this month? And one of the options was the triple bill of Jaws 2, Jaws 3D and Jaws Revenge. And this episode got by far the most votes. It's also the first ever triple bill episode of this podcast. And that is quite a big deal because I've done two movies on this podcast before a few times and I always quite enjoy doing them because generally those episodes are actually a little bit easier to do than episodes on one movie. But this is a totally different beast, so to speak. This is three movies on one episode and the history and legacy of these movies is huge. Uh, it's jaw-sized. So I want to keep it pretty succinct for the sake of episode brevity, but there's also a lot to go into because when you have a masterpiece like Jaws, sequels are inevitable. So pretty much like the Oceanic Depths, we're going to be jumping straight in with Jaws 2. And here's the trailer. Jaws 2. The terror continues. vast and unknown depths of the ocean. How could there have been only one? A shark problem. Are you serious? Roy Scheider. I hope it's my dad. The whole beach looks incredible. Lorraine Gary. <laughs> and Murray Hamilton. Look at this. That's a shark. Look, Brody, you started a panic on a public beach. Somebody decides to sue us. That's a shark. Did you ever stop to think about that? And I know what a shark looks like because I've seen one up close. And you better do something about this one because I don't intend to go through that hell again. Don't 
impressive this time. Mike is out there. fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Four years after the traumatic summer at Amity Island when it was terrorised by a monstrous great white shark, Amity Island is once again open to holidaymakers and a new hotel opens on its shores. Days after the opening, numerous incidents and mysterious disappearances occur, along with a beached, half-eaten killer whale. Police Chief Martin Brody fears that another shark is out there, but he is once again ignored by the townsfolk. But then his young sons, Mike and Sean, find themselves trapped out at sea, and only Chief Brody can save them. Let's run through the cast. We have a lot of returning cast members in this movie. Roy Scheider as Chief Martin Brody, Lorraine Gary as Ellen Brody, Murray Hamilton as Mayor Larry Vaughan, Joseph Mascalo as Len Peterson, Jeffrey Kramer as Deputy Jeff Hendricks, Colin Wilcox as Dr. Elkins, Anne Dusenbury as Tina Wilcox, Mark Gruner as Mike Brody, Mark Gilpin as Sean Brody, Barry Coe as Tom Andrews, Gary Springer as Andy Nicholas. Donna Wilkes as Jackie Peters and Gary Dubin as Eddie Marchand. Jaws 2 was written by Carl Gottlieb and Howard Sackler and was directed by Gino Schwark. So when Jaws came out in the summer of 1975, it was a huge flop. Wait. So when Jaws came out in the summer of 1975, it changed the face of cinema, created the summer blockbuster and Universal did not want a sequel at all. Nope. That's not right either. So when Jaws came out in the summer of 1975, it changed the face of cinema, created the summer blockbuster, and Universal wanted a sequel to Jaws as soon as possible to capitalise on the surprise success of Steven Spielberg's seminal shark spectacular, Troy saying that multiple times very fast. Original producers of Jaws, David Brown and Richard D. Zanuck, quickly realised that Universal would plough ahead with or without them, and not wanting anyone else to be in charge of a Jaws sequel, they decided to take control of the sequel project. That did mean it would be an easier ride than the last time. Jaws was famously problematic, the shark itself was riddled with mechanical issues during production, filming at sea was harsh and unpredictable, the Martha's Vineyard locals hated the production, it would run over budget and over schedule, but just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water, spoiler alert, it wasn't. While Brown and Zanuck were very keen to be involved in a Jaws sequel, Steven Spielberg was not. He didn't even respond to the producers when they approached him to direct Jaws 2. He'd already been there and done that. He'd made the definitive shark movie when everyone thought it was going to be awful. Plus, the production issues on the first Jaws were enough to put him off for good. That doesn't mean he's out of the story just yet, but at that initial point, he was a firm no. Not only would he move on to his own idea, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he would also take with him a key Jaws cast member, Richard Dreyfus, which meant Dreyfus wouldn't return to Jaws 2 as Matt Hooper. Maybe Brown and Zanuck might have had a change of heart if they'd known just how tough Jaws 2 would actually be. The task of writing the first draft of Jaws 2 went to Howard Sackler, an uncredited writer on the first Jaws. The original idea focused on a young Quint and his origin story aboard the USS Indianapolis and the shark attack he monologues about in the original 1975 film. Universal President Sid Scheinberg, though, wanted to give the people more of what they wanted. A return to Amity Island and a return to the Brody family post the events of Jaws, and so he rejected Sackler's original idea. But Sackler did suggest John D. Hancock as director, and together, Hancock and his wife, Dorothy Tristan, envisioned a darker-toned sequel focusing on the human characters taking previously unadapted elements from Peter Benchley's original Jaws novel, including an organised crime subplot. But again, executives from Universal balked at the idea of something different and wanted more of the same Jaws. Something light-hearted and action-packed. Filming had already begun after 18 months of pre-production in June 1977, but almost a month later Hancock was fired and production was shut down. With no director and no script, Zanuck and Brown were back at square one. The situation was so dire that Universal considered pulling the plug on the sequel, 
But Zanuck and Brown were convinced they could make it work. And so just like the first film, Carl Gottlieb was brought on for rewrites of the script. And while Steven Spielberg was again considered to direct, French director Gino Schwark was hired instead. Schwark was a friend of production designer Joe Alves, we're coming to him for Jaws 3D, having worked together on the TV series Night Gallery. While Gottlieb was retooling the script, Schwark started filming dialogue-free scenes. But there was the Roy Scheider-shaped elephant in the room. Because Roy Scheider did not want to return for this movie. He thought it was superfluous and that no one wanted to see him, they just wanted to see the shark. He was in a pickle, though because he was under contract at Universal and had two more films to make for them. He'd been cast in The Deer Hunter as Michael Vromsky, but he'd quit two weeks before the start of filming due to creative differences, ending up being replaced with Robert De Niro. Universal offered him a deal. They would class Jaws 2 as two films rather than one and release him from his contract after completion of Jaws 2. Scheider reluctantly agreed. He was offered quadruple his Jaws salary, plus a percentage of the film's profits. That didn't mean he didn't try to get out of it. He even wrecked a hotel room to feign insanity to try and be let off his contractual obligations. To his credit, he did pledge to do the best job possible despite his reluctance to take the work. He and Schwark didn't get on, though. The atmosphere on set was tense, and technical issues just exacerbated the feelings of anger and resentment. Scheider would complain loudly on set of Schwark's time-wasting, and when a meeting was called for them to let bygones be bygones, a physical fight between the two broke out instead. When John D. Hancock was directing the initial filming of this movie, his shoot took place in Martha's Vineyard, but when Schwark took over, he decided to shoot primarily in Navari Beach, Florida, because the weather was warmer and the water deep enough for the shark platform. Universal would reportedly spend $1 million renting hotel rooms at the Navari Holiday Inn for production offices as well as accommodation. It was also a huge boost to the local economy as local workers were hired as extras, stand-ins and local catering and clothing companies worked on the production. Gino Schwab wanted to differentiate this movie from the first. The first was a tense thriller exacerbated by the lack of actual shark. But the audience knew there was a shark and what it would look like, so he wanted to show it as much as possible to take away the suspense and make it more of a traditional slasher, including scarring the shark for that added traditional slasher feel. For the movie, three sharks were constructed. The first was the luxurious shark, also known as the platform shark. The shark body mold from the first movie was used by Roy Arbogast and special mechanical effects supervisor Robert Matty. The only parts that could be saved from the sharks from the original movie were the chromoly tube frames, which had rotted behind sheds on the lower lot of Universal Studios in the years that followed. Compared to the first movie, Matty's designs were much more intricate and ambitious. The same body was used, but sculptor Chris Muller created a brand new head using a completely new mouth mechanism that included jowls for the first time. But, as we've established before, salt water is still corrosive and so the mechanical shark would still break down, as well as the actors having to deal with being circled by actual sharks during production on the ocean. Remember the phrase, sharks don't take things personally, Mr. Brody, by the time we get to Jaws the Revenge. Filming would end on Jaws 2 just before Christmas 1977, and the final scene to be shot was the electrocution scene, filmed near the man-made cable junction, built on two barges and made of fibreglass and plastic, but incredibly slippery. Due to it not being anchored properly, it would often start to float away into the ocean and they'd have to tug it back. When Jaws 2 was in pre-production, it didn't have a $30 million budget because despite the huge success of Jaws, there was no way that Universal would sign off a $30 million sequel. But due to studio bureaucracy and the various issues during filming, both in Martha's Vineyard and in Florida, it would eventually cost $30 million, over three times what Jaws cost and at the time, the most expensive film Universal had produced. That cost included getting the mighty John Williams back for the score, but filming delays meant Williams started scoring before the film was completed. To help him, Schwark would show Williams edited sequences and storyboards. And Jaws 2, while not as financially or critically successful as its predecessor, would be released on the 16th of June 1978 and would still end up making $187.9 million worldwide. It was the sixth highest grossing film of 1978, 
And it opened the same weekend as Grease, beating that movie to number one at the box office in the US. It was also the highest grossing sequel of all time until Rocky II, and the first sequel to use a number two instead of Roman numerals in its title. Retrospectively, it's seen as the best of all of the Jaws sequels, but that's hardly difficult. Say on, and let's move to Jaws 3D, aka Jaws 3. And here's the trailer. A creature alive today has survived millions of years of evolution. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine that will attack and devour anything. One terrified you like nothing you have ever experienced when it captured your imagination and tapped your fear like no movie before it. Then, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, two continued the legend and spread the fear. Next summer, nature's most terrifying creature takes on an all-new dimension in an all-new adventure. And for the first time, the terror of Jaws will not stop at the edge of the screen. Jaws 3D, the third dimension is terror. Mike Brody is now grown up and working as chief engineer at SeaWorld, a Florida marine park with underwater tunnels and lagoons. As the park prepares for opening, a young great white shark infiltrates the park from the sea and starts seemingly attacking and killing the park's employees. Mike's girlfriend, marine biologist Catherine Morgan, persuades SeaWorld's owner, Calvin Bouchard, to keep the juvenile shark in captivity. Once the shark is captured, it suddenly dies in its tank, and it becomes apparent that a second, much larger shark also entered the park, and they need to find this shark before it's too late. And we have no returning cast members from any of the other movies in this one because we have Dennis Quaid as Mike Brody, Bess Armstrong as Catherine Morgan, Simon McCorkindale as Philip Fitzroyce, Louis Gossett Jr. as Calvin Bouchard, John Putch as Sean Brody, and Leah Thompson as Kelly Ann Bukowski. Jaws 3D has a story by Gerdon Trueblood, screenplay by Richard Matheson and Carl Gottlieb, and was directed by Joe Alves. The third dimension is terror, but it wasn't always terror. The third Jaws movie was, once upon a time, going to be funny. And I don't mean ironically funny or so bad it's good funny, because that's what it is at the moment, but actually funny. A comedy. If you believe in alternate universes, the sliding doors effect, so to speak, there's one universe where we got a third Jaws movie directed by Joe Dante, produced by National Lampoon's Animal House producer Matty Simmons, written by John Hughes and Todd Carroll, titled Jaws 3 People Zero. This all started to happen because of a spoof comedy coming out the same year as Jaws 2. Dante's breakthrough film was 1978's Piranha, itself a spoof of Jaws, and both Jaws 2 and Piranha were out within weeks of each other. This irked Universal, who apparently threatened an injunction to prevent Piranha's release until Steven Spielberg himself endorsed Piranha and declared it was a spoof and not a rip-off. To counteract this, Universal offered Dante Jaws 3 People Zero, a spoof comedy pitched to Universal by original Jaws and Jaws 2 producers Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown, who'd no doubt had quite enough of long, arduous, expensive productions and probably wanted a slice of the easy life. Zanuck and Brown lived next door to Matty Simmons of the National Lampoon magazine, who had a surprise hit also in 1978 with Animal House. They wanted to make a movie together, and Simmons suggested Jaws 3 People Nothing, and on the spot made up a scene of original Jaws author Peter Benchley walking out of his house in a bathing suit, jumping into his swimming pool, disappearing, and all you see is a fin in the pool. Zanuck and Brown loved the idea and a pitch was quickly put together, with John Hughes and Todd Carroll writing a draft R-rated comedy. Zanuck and Brown would want something a bit more family-friendly, though, 
The basic premise was the story of a film crew making a sequel to Jaws, but like the original is beset by production issues, namely that the filming keeps getting interrupted by an actual great white shark killing people. Except they aren't actually sharks, they're aliens disguised as sharks. Spoofs were becoming popular in the late 70s and early 80s, with Airplane, one of the greatest spoofs ever made, spoofing Jaws in its opening title. But Universal stopped Jaws 3 People Zero from ever being anything. They didn't want to have a spoof of their most famous huge monster movie, and they didn't want to quote-unquote foul the nest. Even Steven Spielberg was unhappy with the idea of spoofing his big break. Spielberg reportedly walked into Universal Chairman Sid Scheinberg's office and threatened to walk away from Universal if they made the spoof. By that point, they'd already spent $2.5 million on pre-production. Universal's decision to kill Jaws 3 People Zero would mean both Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown leaving the project, along with Matty Simmons, and they would leave Universal completely, striking a deal with 20th Century Fox instead. But considering what we ended up with, maybe the nest should have been fouled. Maybe it was fouled in a different way. But while Zanuck and Brown preferred moving away from Amity Island and moving away from the Brody family, Universal decided to focus on the now adult children of Martin and Ellen Brody, meaning Roy Scheider would never have to grace the production with his presence, which is a good job, as he point blank refused to even consider it. Not only would Jaws 3 be a straight sequel, it had capitalised on the third movie sequel's 3D trend of the early 80s, started by Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D. It was thought that the 3D aspect would give the second Jaws sequel an edge, which it definitely did. Maybe not the intended edge, but we're going to come back to the 3D. Universal would hire Richard Matheson of I Am Legend fame to write the initial outline, which included Brody's two sons, Mike and Sean, which he wasn't too happy about, but went along with it. He was also asked to write a part for Mickey Rooney, which would never materialise. While the story was credited to Gordon Trueblood for his original idea about a great white swimming upstream and becoming trapped in a lake, Matheson and regular screenplay writer of Jaws, Carl Gottlieb, were credited for the screenplay, despite the original script being amended by multiple unnamed script doctors. Coming in as director and recommended by award-winning Jaws editor Werner Fields, was experienced production designer Joe Alves, who'd worked on the first two films as production designer, as well as second unit director for Jaws 2. This was Alves's first and last directorial job. It also had retrospectively probably the biggest name cast, with Dennis Quaid starring as Mike Brody, the debut of Leah Thompson two years before Back to the Future, and Oscar winner Louis Gossett Jr. Quaid would quite infamously admit to a huge cocaine habit during filming, and producer Rupert Hitzig would confess that most of the production was high on coke and, quote-unquote, it flowed in southern Florida like snow. Jaws 3 was the most expensive 3D film ever made, but notably $12 million less than what Universal had spent on Jaws 2. Principal photography would begin on the 11th of October 1982. Jaws 3, set at SeaWorld, was also filmed at SeaWorld Orlando, which is nowhere near the ocean, by the way. SeaWorld, which had been open for business for 10 years, viewed working with Universal as a chance to gain more exposure. The underwater control centre and bar scenes were shot in what's now Shark's underwater grill. The ski scenes were filmed at Bayside Stadium. The scenes with Shamu were shot at what is now the Dolphin Stadium. That used to be Shamu's home until they built the larger stadium and pools for the killer whales years later. Capricorn, the bottlenose dolphin who played Cindy, is remarkably still alive, aged 50, and still living at Discovery Cove in SeaWorld Orlando. While at the time SeaWorld were undoubtedly thrilled at the publicity, the fact that the man in charge of this fictional SeaWorld is considering killing a baby shark, as well as going against expert advice, then putting it on display in a tiny tank, which then does in fact kill it, was hardly a favourable depiction. But then SeaWorld did a great job of ruining its own reputation, See Blackfish if you haven't. A SeaWorld spokesman claimed that the organisation felt the movie's portrayal of animal violence went against their commitment to understanding and education. Scenes were also shot at SeaWorld San Diego and the Florida Keys. Bess Armstrong really did learn how to become a dolphin trainer. She is really doing those scenes with the dolphins and whales and her tutor actually plays her character's assistant in the film. The whole great whites aren't in captivity though 
is actually real. Throughout the years, many aquariums have attempted to showcase a captive great white alongside other sharks that you might find on display. But it never ends well. For the shark, not the humans. Great white sharks were advertised at SeaWorld and other major aquariums around the world in the 70s, but unfortunately the sharks never survived very long. While they were in tanks, the sharks would not eat and needed help swimming, and within days or weeks they were dead. The longest a great white has been kept in captivity is 198 days at the Monterey Bay Aquarium in 2004. If this was a baby great white measuring 1.2 meters long and the first captive great white shark. As of 2016, Monterey Bay Aquarium is the only public aquarium in the world to have successfully exhibited a white shark for longer than 16 days. So for this fictional sea world to have a great white in 1983, would have indeed been a huge achievement if Calvin Bouchard hadn't inadvertently killed it. A significant portion of Jaws 3D's running time would be spent underwater, and 30 of the film's 85 days of principal photography would be devoted to creating the underwater scenes. The production, however, found it difficult to find a tank big enough for their requirements, and ultimately they decided to build their own custom tank. And this was an enormous enclosure. It could hold hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. It was 111 feet in diameter and 26 feet deep. Five viewing windows were made of distortion-free tempered glass and they were built into the tank for clear filming. And it was filled with fresh water that had undergone a rigorous filtering process to keep the tiny impurities from obscuring the shot. It was the largest tank of its kind at the time in the United States. The actors decided against using stunt performers for the infamous shot of the shark smashing through the control room window in order to achieve a greater sense of realism. A construction crane positioned above the substantial water tank raised the rear half of the control room and just above the set, a smaller tank with 3,500 gallons of water was placed to release the initial rush of water onto the actors. The set was then lowered to the bottom of the bigger tank after the first tank was emptied to simulate the flooding. The shot was finally captured after several difficult test runs, during which the set capsized and one scuba diver suffered serious injuries. Unfortunately, it was found that the water's force was insufficient for the first take, so director Joe Alves decided to reshoot the scene the following day with stunt performers to maximise its cinematic impact, overriding the principal actors for the sake of safety. And this is also why, if you watch this, you'll notice that the set is at a slight angle and it's flooding at an angle. And so clearly, out of the two shots that they did, that was the best one at the time. In order to make the shark for Jaws 3D, Roy Arbogast was once again given the creative reins. He decided to increase its size to 35 feet, which was 10 feet longer than Bruce the shark from Jaws. The shark's body from Jaws 2 would serve as the foundation for this new model. And Arbogast and his team gave the shark new skin and its body and face more flexibility. The shark was now the biggest sea creature prop ever used in a Hollywood production. A three-quarter size shark front half would be built separately and equipped with a hydraulic cable system that would enable the shark's eyes to roll back, the gills to open and close and the lips to curl up and expose its teeth before biting. It was also used for the shots coming from inside the shark's mouth, which I actually really liked. In addition to using scale models for many of the composite shots of the shark and the SeaWorld submersible, Private stock effects would create multiple miniature sharks for the movie to serve a variety of purposes. But really, you're here because of the 3D, aren't you? We're all here because of the 3D. And director Joe Alves wanted to give his directorial debut something to talk about, but he specifically wanted to avoid the regular 3D complaint of headaches. And they were trying to do something totally revolutionary for the 3D in this movie. While Alves and Universal had initially chosen to use a then-common 3D system known as Optimax, they soon discovered that the system was excessively prone to misalignment, necessitating the reshooting of nine days' worth of footage. The studio then contacted Chris Condon and his business StereoVision. However, after just one week, Alves moved Chris Condon and StereoVision to his second unit, where they would be used for Alves movies' second unit shots. Alves then made the decision to switch to a brand new system called ArriVision which provided a much wider variety of lenses, making Jaws 3D the first 3D film to use this method. The ArriVision 2D approach would shoot the film using a single camera and a single strip of film, known as strip over and under units, 
by retrofitting the camera with specially designed twin lens adapters. Using this technique, the cameras were used in tandem to shoot 3D movies in standard colour with a single camera and a single strip of film. This technique split the 35mm film frame in half along the middle, capturing the left eye image in the upper half and the right eye image in the lower half. As a result, filming can proceed as it would for any standard 2D movie without incurring the significant additional cost of using two cameras and film for each shot. A true polarised 3D image is created when the resulting film is screened through a regular projector, albeit one that has a special lens that combines the upper and lower images, and this system eliminates the need for two projectors to run simultaneously throughout the movie, allowing 3D movies to be viewed in almost any cinema. The polarised images are then reflected back to the viewer using both the special projection lens and a reflective silver screen with the proper filter on each eye, blocking out the incorrect image, allowing the viewer to watch the movie from two angles, similar to how the eyes naturally perceive the outside world. With the title change to Jaws 3 for the home video and broadcast TV versions of Jaws 3D, they were produced only using the left eye image. And this is why the picture resolution is noticeably lower than what you'd expect of a film shot on 35mm, because the left eye image only occupies half of the 35mm frame. And why do some of the shots, like that infamous final shark through the glass shot, look so bad? Well, Jaws 3D would go on to become the first major motion picture to use visual effects shots that were composited using video technology rather than the conventional optical film printing process through private stock effects. This technique, which turned out to be much faster and much more effective than printing on film, was used to achieve all of the film's optical shots. Producer Adam Landsberg decided to reshoot all of the movie's optical sequences using the conventional method because the video system offered a resolution that was sadly much lower than what could be achieved on film. Over two-thirds of the planned composite shots for the movie would have to be completely cut, and many more were simplified to speed up the production because there wasn't much money available for the unplanned reshoots. That simplification led to the grainy, static, inferior effect shots, such as the shark smashing through the window, that didn't hold up in 1983, let alone 2023. And it ages the movie even more than it would have otherwise. The original video system effects are available to see online, and the result is a stark contrast. Think very, very, very early, early CG. It's not great, but it looks considerably better than the optical composites that we got. British television composer Alan Parker would be brought in to provide the film's score, taking over the reins from the legendary John Williams. For the third movie in the series, Parker would pay homage to Williams' music and provide a distinctive but well-known score that incorporated various themes from his original composition. The film's original cut was considerably longer than the final theatrical version, and subsequent cuts would remove about 30 minutes. Parker and his team had to return to the studio to re-edit 30 minutes of his final score due to these last-minute changes. Despite all of these issues, Jaws 3D went on to become the second-highest-grossing opening weekend of 1983 when it came out on the 22nd of July 1983. But that success didn't quite continue. It achieved $88 million worldwide on its $18 million budget, $100 million less than its predecessor, but still wildly profitable. Viewers and critics thought the effects were cheesy and the performances campy, and it would be nominated for five Golden Raspberry Awards. But while many thought Jaws 3 would kill off the franchise once and for all, then we got Jaws the Revenge. Here's the trailer. Instinctively, man has always been drawn to the sea. Its beauty, its mystery, its secrets. But there is also a vague uncertainty, a sense of intrusion into an alien world where man is unwelcome and completely at the mercy of the most terrifying predator on Earth. Man's deepest fear has risen again. Jaws, the revenge. This time, it's personal.
after the shark-related death of her youngest son, Sean, only a few days before Christmas, and convinced that a silent underwater predator is victimising her family, grief-stricken widow Ellen Brody tries to start afresh by spending time with her son Michael's family in the Bahamas. However, there too seems to be no escape from the nightmare. Now, for fear of reliving the horrors of the past, Ellen must summon up the courage to face the all-too-familiar great white shark that has been haunting her dreams for the past few years and to put an end to its reign of terror once and for all. And let's run through the cast. We have Lorraine Gary returning as Ellen Brody, Lance Guest as Mike Brody, Mario Van Peebles as Jake McKay, Karen Young as Carla Brody, Judith Barcy as Thea Brody, Michael Caine as Hoagie Newcomb, Lynn Whitfield as Louisa McKay, and Mitchell Anderson as Sean Brody. George the Revenge was written by Michael de Guzman and directed by Joseph Sargent. This time, it's personal. Or is it? It certainly was for Sid Scheinberg. With Universal suffering from box office disappointments in 1986, namely Legal Eagles and Howard the Duck, Howard the Duck especially was expected to be a huge hit, Universal spent about $40 million on the special effects-driven Marvel movie. The failure of Howard the Duck, which definitely deserves an episode at some point, led to infighting at Universal and the departure of Universal President Frank Price. Needing a financial boost and quickly, Sid Scheinberg decided to revisit the Jaws franchise. While Jaws 3 had been a critical disaster, it had made money and revitalising an existing IP seemed the more profitable idea than creating something new from scratch. And in the autumn of 1986, Scheinberg made a phone call to the one man he wanted to helm this fourth Jaws movie. Joseph Sargent. Sargent was most well known for his crime drama, The Taking of Pelham 123, and The Marcus Nelson Murders, the TV movie pilot of Kojak, which coincidentally he also worked with Lorraine Gary. Sargent wasn't daft, he knew the prospect of a third Jaws sequel was a bit of a poison chalice, but Scheinberg reassured him. They wanted a people picture, not a shark picture. He promised to give Sargent complete creative control, appointing him as the sequel's director and one of its producers, and gave him complete freedom to put together the creative team he wanted. But there was a catch to that freedom. Scheinberg wanted to release the movie in the summer of 1987, so let's just do some quick maths. Assuming it was September-October of 1986 when they spoke, and Jaws 87, as it was then called, was coming out in July of 1987, its actual release date, that would give Joseph Sargent nine, maybe ten, at a push, months to do pre-production, filming, and post-production on an effects-heavy Jaws sequel. It's almost like this project was doomed before it was even started. Still, Sargent was positive and saw the quick turnaround as a chance to make a different sort of Jaws movie. What about the human characters showing the emotions associated with grief and give you characters you could truly empathise with? Sargent hired Michael de Guzman and together they hastily put together a story worthy of a fourth movie and it started with Chief Martin Brody. They wanted the movie to start with an older, more weary Brody doing his patrols at Christmas on Amity Island's waters when suddenly a great white shark jumps out of the water and kills him. Hugh opening titles. You may think, well, that's what happened to Sean Brody, and you'd be right. It was originally set to happen to Martin Brody, with his grieving wife Ellen convinced that the local shark population had it in for everyone in the Brody family tree. You won't be surprised to learn that Roy Scheider refused to return for the role and rejected Universal's offer to kill his character once and for all, letting Martin Brody die of a heart attack off-screen. De Guzman included an evil witch doctor in the original draft, which was controlling the shark, but this was removed in later revisions. The shark and Ellen Brody would have a psychic connection, and the script for Jaws the Revenge was finished in just five weeks. As 1986 transitioned into 1987, Sargent and De Guzman were frantically busy trying to get their Jaws sequel off the ground. But in terms of acting, Lorraine Gary was not. With Jaws, she'd landed a supporting role in one of the biggest films of the 70s. But with Spielberg's next project, the World War II comedy 1941, her career had hit a wall. She'd been married to Sid Scheinberg since 1956, and she'd retired from the movie industry after 1941's release and had no intention of returning to the big screen. 
until her husband came home from work one day and told her they were thinking of making a fourth Jaws movie. She was stunned and thought he was teasing her, until further down the line he told her they wanted to make the movie all about Ellen Brody. For the first time in the franchise, a woman would lead a Jaws movie, and it was to be a deeply personal story of loss, grief and finding love again that also happened to include the vendetta of a 35-foot shark. There were rumours that the success of the Alien sequel Aliens in 1986 had given Scheinberg the idea to have his very own action heroine, but those rumours have never been confirmed. The rest of the cast gradually assembled around her once Gary was confirmed to reprise her role as Ellen Brody. Lance Guest, who'd previously appeared in The Last Starfighter and Halloween 2, was chosen to play Michael, Ellen's grown-up son, replacing Dennis Quaid from Jaws 3D. Having recently appeared in Clint Eastwood's Heartbreak Ridge, Universal cast young actor Mario Van Peebles as Jake, a scientist from the Bahamas. Van Peebles initially turned the role down until he was told he would have a very large paycheck and creative freedom to do the character of Jake as he wanted. Scheinberg didn't shy away from offering lucrative deals for the actors in this movie and reportedly offered Michael Caine $1.5 million to play Hoagie, as well as a free trip for him and his family to the Bahamas. The filming schedule was so tight that Kane couldn't get a single day off to accept his Academy Award for his role in Hannah and Her Sisters. Kane was a huge coup for the production, already a triple Oscar nominee, and his reasons for doing Jaws the Revenge were entirely financially driven. He'd explain in his 1992 memoir, What's It All About, that he and his family were planning a move from Los Angeles to Oxfordshire and the house building costs were higher than anticipated, so he took the movie for the money and has been incredibly honest about it ever since, famously saying, quote, I have never seen the film, but by all accounts, it was terrible. However, I have seen the house that it built and it is terrific, unquote. And when I say the turnaround was quick, it was super quick. Filming started in February of 1987. Even Universal executives were baffled as to why the production was so hastily put together. What should have been a two-year project was condensed into nine months and the pressure on Joseph Sargent was intense, especially when, as typical for a Jaws movie, they had serious issues with the sharks. There were seven sharks, or segments, created. They had a metal frame, latex skin, and were made of fiberglass. The models were controlled by a hydraulic arm that could move the sharks in any direction while submerged, and the platform could rotate 180 degrees. One was a half shark, a top half. The two models were fully articulated, two were designed for jumping, one was for ramming and one was just a fin. The two 25-foot-long, 2,500-pound fully articulated models had 22-sectioned ribs, movable jaws and flexible water-based latex skin covering them. The opening scenes on Amity Island again shot in Martha's Vineyard and set at Christmas, no less, making Jaws the Revenge also a Christmas movie, were completed in just seven days before the production relocated to Nassau in the Bahamas for a further 38 days. Most of the actors were shooting seven days a week. When Lance Guest wasn't doing dialogue, he would work with the second unit doing underwater shots and filming with the shark. And if you're thinking, there are several scenes where you can clearly see the shark's wires and guide rail, you'd be absolutely correct. Despite shooting in the Bahamas, it wasn't the ideal location for water shoots and production moved to the Universal lot, where a 50-foot water tank 17 foot deep had been constructed on the lot in stage 27 for both the underwater aquatic shots and also the above water scenes, such as the final scenes where Ellen Brody is clearly not in the open ocean, because where is the blue sky? Michael Small was hired for the score, and his score is generally seen as the high point of the movie, along with its beautiful Bahamian setting. At least it looks visually different to Amity. Filming finally completed in the Bahamas on the 4th of June 1987, which gave them only six weeks to edit and release the movie, and that's without the changes they made to its ending. Because when Jaws the Revenge finally did hit US cinema screens on the 17th of July 1987, critics were even harsher than they were for Jaws 3D, and initial audiences were turning out for another Jaws movie, but the feedback on the ending was dire. Not only did Mario Van Peebles' character Jake die a horrific bloody death, but Ellen Brody would harpoon the shark with the boat. Viewers didn't respond kindly to either, but Sid Scheinberg had a plan. They would reshoot the ending for international audiences. It meant returning to the Universal lot, bringing back Van Peebles as miraculously just injured and not dead, and Lorraine Gary's boat would rather improbably pierce the shark 
and making it explode. And we will never understand why piercing a shark makes it explode, but I guess that's just Jaws logic. Even now, showings on TV vary between the different endings. Jaws the Revenge was overscheduled and over budget. By the end of production, it had cost $23 million, $5 million more than Jaws 3D. And while it was profitable, earning $51 million worldwide, it was by no means the big success the studio wanted or indeed needed. And the everlasting legacy of Jaws the Revenge is mostly one of derision. It's frequently listed on So Bad It's Good lists or So Bad It's Bad lists. If you are wondering why it was so bad, well, its hurried production is undoubtedly the main reason. But its legacy is also marred by tragedy and a trigger warning for child abuse and murder. So please fast forward a few minutes if you don't want to hear about this particular part of the story. Young Judith Barcy, who played Ellen Brody's granddaughter Thea, is one of the highlights of this maybe-not-so-great movie. Sergeant would heap praise on Barcy, who was a natural performer despite her young age. She was eight during filming, but was short for her age and could easily appear younger. Like many child actors, Judith was providing for her family at her young age, but by 1987, she'd already appeared in Jaws the Revenge, as well as provided her voice for the characters of Ducky in The Land Before Time and Anne-Marie in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Despite her earnings and career successes, her father Joseph's alcoholism worsened and he started verbally and physically abusing both Judith and her mother Maria. Maria would report him to the police but would end up dropping the charges. His threats continued though with Judith starting to suffer extreme physical and emotional abuse, which her agent took her to a child psychologist who reported her findings to Child Protective Services. Maria would promise Child Protective Services that she was divorcing her husband and planned to move away with Judith but she hesitated to leave. And on the 28th of July, 1988, the bodies of Maria Barcy, Joseph Barcy and 10-year-old Judith were found at their home in an apparent murder-suicide. Both The Land Before Time and All Dogs Go to Heaven were released posthumously with the closing credits song of All Dogs Go to Heaven dedicated to Judith. It is a real tragedy, especially when Judith Barcy is genuinely one of the highlights of Jaws the Revenge. But like the eponymous shark, Jaws seems to have sunk to the bottom of the Hollywood ocean, although remnants do remain. A 1995 Italian director video movie was shot in Florida and marketed as Jaws 5 Cruel Jaws and uses footage from all four previous Jaws movies for which Universal, unsurprisingly, did not grant permission. As for an official fifth Jaws movie, it seems highly unlikely. Richard Zanna, David Brown, Roy Scheider and Peter Benchley have all since passed away and Steven Spielberg himself is blocking any prospect of a Jaws 5 or a Jaws reboot. But the Jaws sequels are at least distinctive enough to be differentiated from each other. There's the Best of a Bad Bunch sequel, the 3D one with terrible glass smashing scene, and the one setting the Bahamas. And for that reason, you have to give them props for making them each so different. In official terms, Jaws 2 is the teen slasher, Jaws 3 is the monster movie set in an aquarium, and Jaws the Revenge is the one where a human woman and a shark have a psychic connection. Some movies are destined to be franchises. Jaws was never one of them, but I love each of these sequels in their own ways. Double Diorama loves a trier, and each of these sequels was an earnest attempt to make a quote-unquote worthy successor to Jaws. And I'm not just saying that to be contrarian. I bought the triple-pack DVD of these movies. I would watch them again. Jaws 3 makes me laugh the most. If you separate three and four specifically from Jaws, they're just camp, cheesy shark movies. And I love camp, cheesy shark movies. Jaws 2 does happily perch on its own pedestal, but that is primarily thanks to Roy Scheider. But where else are you going to see 3D shark Jaws flying towards you? Nowhere. No other franchise is this bold or brave. But let me know on social media what other sequels could match these ones for the sheer audacity. And thanks for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Jaws 2, Jaws 3D, and Jaws the Revenge. And coming up next on this podcast for Sequel Temple, we're actually going to be continuing with another sequel to a Steven Spielberg masterpiece. Totally coincidental, by the way. Because the next episode, I'm going to be doing an episode on The Lost World Jurassic Park, which I believe came third in the patron poll. So a lot of patrons are really interested in The Lost World Jurassic Park. 
I am really interested in the Lost World Jurassic Park. It's just coincidence that it's come after all of the Jaws sequels. But I hope you will join me next week for the history and legacy of the Lost World Jurassic Park. I hope that you've liked this slightly different Triple Bill episode. But spoiler alert, it's not going to be the only Triple Bill episode of this month. If you have enjoyed this episode, you can help this podcast grow and be noticed by others by leaving a rating or review wherever you found this podcast, retweeting or liking posts on social media or telling friends and family. If you want to find me, you can. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter. Not X, it's still Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, Threads and also Blue Sky as well at Verbal Diorama. And you can always get in touch with me. You can email verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can go to my website and fill out the contact form on there. As always, I'm so grateful to the patrons of this podcast. This episode was chosen by the patrons of this podcast. So a huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. And if you do want to join them, then you can. Verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And finally. Bye. Movie should know.